Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Good to see you both. How you doing, hey, Chris? Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will dig into the big business of beauty and cosmetics. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with a big deal in big tech. Microsoft announced it's buying Nuance Communications, a voice recognition company, in a deal worth $16 billion. CEO Satya Nadella says they will use the technology in their healthcare cloud products. This makes Nuance the second largest acquisition Microsoft has ever made. And Ron, they must love that tech because they <laughs> shortened by Nuance for its amazing balance sheet. No, and it's even well closer to twenty billion when you when you count all the debt, um, which pales in comparison to, as you said, the twenty six billion for LinkedIn. But it's still a huge deal, and I actually like this deal. Nuance specializes in voice recognition, artificial intelligence. Um, they're actually the company that originally built the back end for Siri um, back in the day. Uh, they're especially strong in healthcare, where they help doctors speed up documentation. They predict, uh, help to predict a patient's needs. They improve digital record keeping at hospitals. This is going to fit perfectly into Microsoft's Cloud for Healthcare initiative, I, I believe. Uh, in fact, Microsoft estimated that the combination of both companies should double the total addressable market in the healthcare provider space to nearly $500 billion. So they'll be aggressively attacking that space, I'm sure. These companies have collaborated before. They're no strangers to each other. Um, they have integrated Nuance's technology into Microsoft Teams in the past. They've had a healthcare collaboration as well. I expect we'll see further collaboration and integration. Um, Teams, Office 365, perhaps they're even going to go uh, after the automated assistant market to, to go after Apple and Amazon in that space. Uh, didn't come cheap. You know, these, these tech uh, acquisitions, uh, they, companies tend to pay up. Microsoft paid 13 times revenue, 2020 revenue of Nuance, um, which is not as high-flying as some of these 30, 40, 50 times uh, sales to revenue, uh, price to revenue we talk about. But still, it's pretty pricey. But overall, I continue to be a really happy shareholder of Microsoft. I'm a big fan. I think they're executing well, and I think this acquisition makes good sense. By my count, they still have over $100 billion on the balance sheet that they can put to use. Uh, safe to assume we're going to see more acquisitions, maybe not at this level, but um, they got the money, Ron. They've got the money. It's a competitive world out there. You know, they're going up against Amazon, Apple in the healthcare space. Even Google has a research effort in healthcare. So I think you'll continue to see acquisitions there as well in other sectors. Not only do they have an unbelievable balance sheet, but they produce gobs and gobs of cash flow each quarter. So yes, we will continue to see uh, future acquisitions. Another week, another hot new public company. On Wednesday, Coinbase went public through a direct listing. Coinbase is the most popular crypto exchange in the United States. And now, Emily, it's worth more than $65 billion. <laughs> sure. Totally reasonable, right, Chris? I mean, I, uh, Coinbase has had an incredibly volatile start to its life as a public company. But given the market conditions we're living in today, I can't say that anybody was really surprised. There are lots of 
good things about the Coinbase platform. They have over $90 billion in crypto assets, which is 11% of the crypto market cap. Uh, they have a huge following of institutional users. In fact, nearly 65% of the assets on their platform are owned by institutions. But there is a really natural level of skepticism that comes into this business, not just based off of its uh, crazy, really immediately high valuation in the public markets, but also just controversies around cryptocurrency in general, how viable it is from a business perspective, as well as the potential for margins to be compressed as competition heats up. I'm glad you mentioned the institutions, because one of the things I've heard is that this is a way for whether it's institutions, hedge fund managers, uh, mutual fund managers, this is a way for them to get exposure to the crypto market without having to essentially pick and choose among the world of Bitcoin. I mean, is that as much as anything part of the bull case for something like Coinbase that it's, I don't, I don't want to use the word easy, but uh, I can't think of another one. So, is this just an easier entry point for a lot of fund managers? It's an interesting argument because there are a lot of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency ETFs available. So it's not that Coinbase is the only way to play the market without owning shares of Bitcoin directly. I'll just add, I'm fully aware that we get kind of cynical about some of these things, these high flyers, these um, high valuation companies, and we're often wrong in our cynicism. But I, I'm going to go, I'm going to double down on it anyway, <laughs> because I fail to understand how this can be valued similarly, if not more than the owner of the New York Stock Exchange, Intercontinental Exchange, especially understanding that there's going to be lots of competition here. Lots of folks can add on an exchange for cryptocurrency. And they will not be the only game in town. In fact, they're not the only game in town. Um, but other others, if this market continues um, to be a reasonable opportunity, others are coming coming for them. And uh, I just I don't see how that valuation makes any sense. Let, let me play devil's advocate and try to convince you, Ron, uh, okay. because there's a good argument that their 0.5% transaction fee, which is their average across, is going to be pulled down as competition heats up. Where I think Coinbase could make up some of that margin increases is by providing analytics and data services. It is, admittedly, a lot of the things that we see ICE and other exchange providers providing to the people who list on their exchanges. But I do think they can expand more into data and analytics, which can be a higher margin revenue source for them. Well, they better expand quite a bit to grow, <laughs> to grow into that valuation. Time will tell. It'll be interesting to watch. This week, the Food and Drug Administration asked states to temporarily halt using Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine after six people in the U.S. developed a rare blood clotting disorder. The FDA says, says that this move was out of an abundance of caution. Uh, Ron, it's Friday afternoon as we're having this conversation. This is an evolving situation as... Johnson & Johnson is in this regulatory limbo, but from a business perspective, at this point, it really doesn't seem like the company's been hurt in any way. I would tend to agree with that. We'll have to watch how it plays out. Six people, one death, which obviously is tragic, but out of 6.8 million doses that have gone into arms, um, I think the, the phrase abundance of caution is appropriate here because typically I don't think that level of complications would rise to the level of needing to halt something. But we're in unprecedented times here and, and kudos to the FDA for being extra cautious here. Um, 
you know, it's interesting to, to note that the AstraZeneca vaccine over in Europe had similar issues um, and came under scrutiny um, with clotting as well. Both J&J and AstraZeneca use gene and viral-based technologies, whereas Pfizer and Moderna, which have really had not many issues at all, use a different technology called messenger RNA, mRNA. So perhaps there's something there in, in the way these vaccines are, are made. J&J, in fact, asked Pfizer and Moderna to help study blood clot risks. Interestingly, they declined. AstraZeneca, not surprisingly, was like, yeah, I'll participate. <laughs> um, but Pfizer and Moderna didn't, didn't see a, any reason to, to go in and, and duplicate the efforts of regulators. So we'll have to wait to see what happens here. My guess is that J&J will come back on the market. I just hope that this doesn't increase the vaccine hesitancy that we've seen um, across the world, the U.S., um, not just for health reasons, but it's a business show for economic reasons. We're, we're in the early stages, mid stages of, of reopening up. Um, getting uh, to herd immunity is an important part of that. Getting vaccines in the arms is an important part. J&J &J is very important because it's only one shot and it doesn't require the cold storage of some of the other vaccines. So you can do it in different places of the country, more rural areas, for example. It's easier on college campuses, things like that. So I hope this turns out to be um, a non-event and J&J &J comes back on the market relatively soon. Shares of Stitch Fix down more than 10% this week after company founder Katrina Lake announced she will be stepping down as CEO. She will stay on with the company as executive chair. But, uh, Emily, this is kind of surprising when you consider she is only 38 years old. And there are a lot of people out there who bought this stock based on their belief in the CEO. It's certainly a sad day for Stitch Fix because Katrina Lake, uh, Stitch Fix was was her baby. It was her mind child. She had spent you know, decades right developing this idea and this business, and she is relatively young. Uh, but it just goes to show that having a really motivated, invested founder doesn't necessarily mean that the business itself is going to succeed. I like when those two things align, but in this case, I think Stitch Fix is kind of fighting an uphill battle with its core service, which is subscription box clothing. Uh, and one area, well, I think Katrina Lake has an, an amazing job in many areas. One area that I think is, is ripe for improvement is this business's strategy. It seems to be confused about if they're using algorithms and AI, if they're using stylists, or if they're going direct to consumer or subscription boxes. They've been a bit all over the place. So, with Elizabeth Spaulding coming in as the new CEO, it'll be really interesting to see what strategy she takes in terms of segmenting Stitch Fix's market and really going after one strategy in particular. Coming up, we've got snacks and beverages. And if you're looking for something a little stronger, we got that too. <laughs> Details after the break. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Bed Bath & Beyond ended the fiscal year not with a bang, but a whimper. Fourth quarter sales fell double digits. There were charges due to store closures. And shares of Bed Bath & Beyond down 15% this week. Ron, you and I are both shareholders of this mm -hmm. company. I get why the stock is down, but the turnaround that CEO Mark Tritton is trying to pull off is not for the faint of heart, and I still like what he's doing. Yeah, and I think he's still on track, too, despite the sell-off in the shares this week. You know, the stock had already run up pretty nicely amid the high expectations for Tritton's turnaround, and also some of that you know nonsensical Reddit GameStop 
stuff that they got kind of caught up in. Um, so I think investors were likely to take some money off the table if they saw any weakness in the turnaround story. And in this case, it was the light revenue. Um, but overall, I think the quarter was solid. Comp sales over across all the stores up 4%, up 6% across bed bath stores. Third straight quarter of comparable store sales growth. We had the tailwinds from some COVID home-related projects going on, but that was offset by a decline in traffic at the physical stores. As you said, revenue down 16%. That's largely due to the divestitures of World Market and Christmas tree shops, which I was actually really pleased to see them get rid of, as well as some planned store closings. Um, so. The turnaround's on track. Adjusted gross margin was up a bit, um, less promotional activity going on. Operating expenses were mostly lower due to the divestitures. So, you know, the bottom line looked fine to me. Adjusted EBITDA up 13%. They had earnings per share of 40 cents, which actually beat expectations. They reiterated guidance for fiscal 2021 of around 500 million in EBITDA, which translates to about 8.5 times enterprise value at the current share price, which is, is not pricey, in my opinion, especially if, if Triton continues to execute and profitability continues to increase. I happened to be in a bed bath earlier this week, and I will tell you, the re-merchandising is very, very evident, and the focus on private labels such as Nestwell and, and Haven, um, there's mostly private label um, goods in some of the departments there. So, and it was very evident. So let's let's give Triton some time. I think the story is still on track, and despite the pullback, I think I think we're okay here. Last year's sales of hard seltzer were 160 percent higher than the previous year. But one market leader is not sitting still. This week, White Claw introduced Surge, which is hard seltzer with a higher alcohol content, and it comes in a bigger can. Emily, if this is even remotely popular, there is no way Boston Beer Company doesn't do the exact same thing with their truly line of hard seltzer. You know, Chris, I kind of think this is a disaster. <laughs> I, and, and hear me out, hear me out. White Claw created an entire industry off of convincing alcohol consumers that picking White Claw was the healthier choice. They were small cans, simple design, no carbs or low carbs, only 100 calories, 5% alcohol. I mean, these were the sorts of things that you could sit with your friends out on a patio sipping. If I am at a friend's house, we're having a barbecue, and someone pulls out a can of Surge. These things are double the calories, double the size, nearly double the alcohol content. You don't think that's going to start a conversation? <laughs> I mean, it's a Sunday night. What are you doing with your life? <laughs> I think before we know it, they're going to do the same thing without the carbonation. And before you know it, we're all just drinking whiskey. Here, here's what I will say, though, and what, what I think is really critical from an investing standpoint. We saw Constellation Brands last week come out with earnings, and they spent a lot of time talking about their Corona seltzers. They were the second fastest moving seltzer brand over the last year. So that's a genuine threat to White Claw. So what I think White Claw was thinking here is, okay, we'll continue with our dominating seltzer brands, but this new product isn't going to cannibalize any of the people who are already buying White Claws. It's going to get the four locos crowd, right? The college students who maybe see a giant can on their way out of Total Wine and pick it up. I don't know. I, you know <laughs> I don't imitation know. is the sincerest form of flattery. I, it's not going to surprise me if, if Boston Beer does this with Truly. 
We'll stick with beverages. First quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected for Pepsi. Iran as Pepsi waits for restaurants and sporting venues to open at full capacity. The Frito-Lay snack division continues to get it done. As we were all basically sitting home in quarantine snacking, um, which is, is, is the truth, and it's the offset to the fact that restaurants, theaters, stadiums were closed and the beverage business was really hurt. Um, so Pepsi has, has stayed afloat as a result of their diversified business. Interestingly, just from a stock perspective, shares are up about 6% over the last year, and they're actually down slightly from pre-COVID levels. So investors not too excited about owning, owning this company right here, right now. Um, some, some metrics, revenues up 6.8%, Frito-Lay up 4%, Quaker up 2%, and the beverage business up 5%. Um, so numbers look fine. It's just not all that exciting. Their operating expenses, I think, were pretty well controlled in the absence of some COVID-related exp expenses. And, and you saw a nice increase in margins, which led to a net income or an earnings per share increase of 29% as a result of that leverage of margins going up. So um, that, that is pretty strong, in my opinion. They reiterated their 2021 guidance, which is mid-single-digit increase in organic revenue, high single-digit increase in earnings per share, and as you said, management predicted an acceleration in growth in the second quarter as a result of the gradual reopening of restaurants and theaters following the rollout of vaccines. They said, quote, we've been losing market share in the beverage space in the past. It's getting better. We are gaining share right now. That was interesting to see because Coca-Cola has, has kind of uh, been eating their lunch, so to speak, um, for a bit recently. Um, interestingly, the company also signaled uncertainty over demand for multi-pack snacks as consumers return to offices and colleges, and we all get out of our living rooms and off of our couches. Shares are not too expensive, 23 times, Coke is 25 times, kind of in the same ballpark here. They remain very strong companies. They're just not high growth, high flyers. Well, and we've talked about different businesses pulling forward growth. I saw one industry report that North American snack sales in 2020 rose 11%, and typical growth is more in the range of 2 to 4%. So, it's, I think it's kind of telling that Pepsi's stock really isn't doing all that well when you consider that this division is just, you know, going crazy with growth over the pandemic, and it's not likely to continue in 2021. Yeah, and you know, we think of stocks like Disney or the cruises or the airlines as, as reopening plays here. Um, there's nothing wrong with thinking about Pepsi in the same way. Once restaurants are back online and theaters and stadiums, that business is going to come back pretty significantly. And if you're only paying 23 times now, um, you, you might have some nice upside here. Ron, Emily, we'll see you later in the show. Can I interest you in an industry worth half a trillion dollars? Up next, we'll dig into the business of cosmetics and beauty. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. According to some estimates, the cosmetics industry is valued at more than $500 billion. One of the more recent entries into that market is Elf Beauty. And no, Elf Beauty does not sell products for Santa's little helpers. Elf stands for Eyes, Lips, Face. Mandy Fields is the Chief Financial Officer at Elf Beauty. Recently, my colleague Bill Mann caught up with her to get a sense of where Elf is going in the future. 
and to get an overview of the cosmetics industry. Elf uh, plays in both the color cosmetics and skincare space. Uh, both are large industries, both uh, domestically and globally, mm. uh, and we are, uh, you know, you know, well positioned to play in both of those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I would start by saying Elf, E L F. ELF stands for eyes, lips, face. And so that's usually where I start these conversations. What does ELF even stand for? <laughs> so eyes, lips, face. Um, and in the color cosmetics uh, space that we play in, we are what we call on the mass side of color cosmetics. So there's a mass side and there's a prestige side. You think prestige, like you mentioned, L'Oreal, the, the body of L'Oreal brands largely live in the prestige space, but they do have the L'Oreal brand that lives mm-hmm. in the mass space. And so when you think about some of Elf's key competitors, L'Oreal, Revlon, CoverGirl, Maybelline, those really round out kind of the top five with Elf uh, being kind of in that fourth or fifth slot there. Mm. Um, On the math side, uh, you think about color cosmetics. We are mainly distributed in places like Walmart, Target, Ulta are our top customers. We're also in the drug channel and internationally. Uh, And I think that one of the key differences with ELF is that we actually were a, we're a digitally native brand. So we were founded online back in 2004. um, And we have that relationship with our consumers. So uh, direct to consumer, and that certainly has played in our favor uh, during COVID. Uh, especially as a lot of consumers have shifted that purchase behavior from in-store to online. So color cosmetics, great category, uh, historically um, has been a growth category. Uh, Prior to COVID, it was kind of on a negative two, negative three trend overall, but uh, certainly the expectations are when things open back up, color is going to get back. To, yeah. to grow. Yeah. I want to talk a lot about that over the time that we, you know, that that, that we have together. Um, I do want to make sure when we when we use industry nomenclature. So maybe give us a, give me me uh, a definition of what you mean when you say color cosmetics. Like what is what is that exactly? Sure, color cosmetics. So just think about uh, lipstick. Like I said, eyes, lips, face. So anything you put on your eyes, lips, face, eyeshadow, mascara, um, blush, foundations, concealers, primers, all of those things fall under color cosmetics. Uh, and then, like I said, we also have our skincare side, which has been uh, a growth driver for us as well. And skincare cleansers, moisturizers, things of that nature. So skincare, so so just to define them, skincare is probably something that you're not looking at to like change the shading of what you are, you know, of, of, of your face. That is actual, yeah. actual, actual care. So, okay, fantastic. Um, and, and so you've given us a little bit of where ELF fits into the industry, um, it, but you mentioned both prestige and mass. Mass, yeah. What what is the difference between the, between the two, or is there is is it is there a bright line between them in terms of how an ELF would interact with its end customers versus versus a prestige brand? You know, I think that 
the, the difference is, and actually now there's a new term called mastige out there that mm. is really the blend of both mass and prestige. Of course there is. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess so the way to think about it is, like I said, mass players traditionally are kind of those Walmart targets, drug mm. channel of the world. And then you have Ulta's uh, of the world really start to play in that what we call mastige space and then into prestige. And I think the great thing about Elf is that Elf Beauty has really been on an evolution um, over the last year uh, from moving from single brand in the mass space to now we have three brands under our portfolio. Uh, we have Elf, which is kind of more on the value side of things in the mass space. We have Well People, which is kind of more so in the middle from um, a price point standpoint, uh, but also distributed in Target. Um, and has presence in Ulta as well. And then we have our key soul care brand that we just launched in December that really sits on the kind of more in that prestige space. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk about kind of where it's distributed, kind of exclusive with Ulta and with price points <clears throat> kind of in that 20 to $40 range um, is more so on the prestige side of things. It had to be particularly going back a year ago from now. And you started in 2019. Was 2019. It late late no, in the it year? Was, it was uh, spring of 2019. Okay, so you were about a year in and suddenly yeah. suddenly everything's shutting <laughs> down for, for a brand that's about beauty, that's about self-care. You had to be really careful that That's you right. weren't doing something that you that, that that you weren't missing the boat on what people were feeling at that moment. Right? That's right. In in March of 2020, not that many people were worried about feeling beautiful. Yeah. No, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, March of 2020, uh, you know, we saw significant declines in in the business, uh, and you know, we went into kind of COVID uh, uh, contingency mode. Like, what are, what are what are the plans that you're putting in place to to weather this storm? And um, you know, the first thing I did, uh, having been <laughs> in, in a highly levered environment prior to Elf, I went out and made sure our credit agreement was amend amended so that our covenants you know, were, were, were remain intact uh, during this time. But um, outside of that, our first priority was really making sure our consumers and our employees were safe. And so we did not fall tone deaf to that at all. We did not continue with our marketing campaign that we had been on prior to that. We flipped and you mentioned Eyes Lip Safe was one of the things, Eyes Lip Space Safe was one of the things that we did to really educate people. Wash your hands, you know, uh, make sure you're using sanitizer. We started sending out hand sanitizer with every purchase mm. on elfcosmetics.com. We sent care packages to our employees, making sure they had masks and gloves and bleach wipes and whatever it is that they needed um, in those early days. So we wanted to make sure that everybody felt safe, cared for. Um, we, we made donations during that time to food banks because we knew people were in need mm -hmm. during that time. And so uh, we really, you know, are um, a company that cares about our consumers, our employees, and, uh, you know, making sure everybody felt connected. You talked about um, interviewing the CPO from Zoom. I mean, we have levered Zoom so much. We... <laughs> We, uh, there's so much communication now, yeah. you know, in our town halls, we were doing weekly town halls to make sure people felt connected during this time. And so uh, big credit to Zoom for keeping us all together. Could you just imagine if this had happened even five years before? Oh my gosh, I know. I mean, really? I, yeah. I tell my kids, if this would have happened when I was a kid, 
I don't know what we would have done. We would have been yeah, out of school for a year. They would have had to have sent a pigeon to tell me that like things were <laughs> opening back up, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. Just, yeah. No, it, 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 it really, it, you know, it, it, it really, really has been remarkable. Uh, so, um, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to try not to sound like an idiot in doing so. So it's totally okay for you to say, yeah, it's really not a great question. Um, my first, as an analyst, the first company that I ever analyzed in your, uh, in your industry, it's a company called Amori Pacific and they're based in Korea yeah. and they're, uh, and this was 10 years ago, and they had made the point very strongly that most cosmetics companies did not have a palette that was reflective of their market. Their market was primarily Korea, Japan, China. How much has the industry changed now? How much has the industry changed so that, so that the palettes meet everyone where they want to be? Yeah. I, did I, I think do okay with the question? You, you did okay with the question. Yes. I, 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 what you're getting at is the diversity, making sure people feel represented in color cosmetics. And I mm. think that the industry has made uh, a lot of strides in the right direction, uh, especially ELF. Uh, we certainly have, um, and making sure that we have, uh, you know, uh, concealers and foundations that kind of represent the, the full shade range. Mm. Uh, certainly more room for us to continue to improve upon that and, you know, make additional shades, uh, making sure people feel well represented in everything. I will say that from, from a diversity standpoint, it does start at the top. And so our board, uh, is, you know, starting with our board, very diverse, over 55%, um, women, 20%, uh, uh, black, uh, uh, representation on our board, which is very rare. Um, I think our diversity stats put us in like one of three publicly traded companies with that kind of profile. Um, our executive team is also quite diverse. Uh, you, you don't normally see that in these, uh, types of companies in publicly traded large companies. Um, and then our employee population, uh, you know, over 75% women, uh, very much leans towards millennial. I think it's over 60% millennial, mm -hmm. um, and, and over, uh, 30%, 35% diverse. So right. we have, uh, started to really see that at the top and that it filters down to all of our decision-making when it comes to colors and palettes, uh, our shade ranges, uh, mm -hmm. how we show up in our marketing, making sure that from a marketing standpoint, when we put images on Instagram and out there in social media, that it's fully representative of, of everyone out there. So I'm going to close with this. So my, my, my wife is a, is, is, is a professional who's also been working home for a lot of the year and, <laughs> Last week, I, I went downstairs and she was wearing heels and she'd had earrings on. It was a little shocking to me. And it wasn't shocking. She, she, she looked amazing, but it was a little shocking because it's the kind of thing that we used to do all the time. We always yeah. were about, you know, dressing up a little, trying to feel attractive. 2020 and the beginning of 2021 changed that a lot for a lot of people. Yeah. And you all shifted very well. Your numbers reflect it. I feel and hope like we're about to shift again. Yeah. What do you feel like? What, what, what is ELF's strategy or thoughts to, as we all come out of our cocoon, what is 2022 and 2023 going to look like for you? 
Yeah, well, as you said, you know, ELF has done well during, we were doing well before the pandemic, have done well during, and feel well positioned as we come out of the pandemic. And we have continued to build share over that time uh, and feel, feel good about our ability to continue to build market share. Um, as we look forward, you know, we're hopeful that things are opening back up and vaccines roll out and people get back to wanting to get out there. Uh, we've heard people call it the roaring 20s. We'll come back and <laughs> people will want to really get out Seems there. Seems a little aspirational and... <laughs> so far, but. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so we're, we're cautiously, you know, cautiously monitoring the situation. You know, it will be, I think, a full recovery, totally dependent on the speed of vaccination rollout and how quickly people can get back to you know, what they were doing prior to the pandemic. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. so we're watching it and we're hopeful. Up next, Ron Gross and Emily Flippin return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. When a girl can't be herself no more, I just want to cry. I just want to cry for the world. When a girl As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Last fall, IBM announced it was spinning off one-fourth of its business to focus on opportunities in hybrid cloud growth. At the time, IBM used the word NUCO as a temporary placeholder name for the business. And this week, IBM announced the permanent name of the new company is Kindrel, K-Y-N-D-R-Y-L. The company said, and I'm quoting here, Kindrel is a modern adaptation of two words that are central to the new company's identity and mission. Kin is derived from the word kinship, referencing the belief that relationships with people are at the center of the strategy, and that long-lasting relationships must be built and nurtured. Drill comes from tendril, bringing to mind new growth and the idea that business is always working toward advancing human progress. Emily, where would you like to start? I, I genuinely don't know where to begin. I imagine there's somebody out there really patting themselves on their back for writing this up, feeling really proud. And it's it's hilarious, not just because kindrel, like kinship and tendril, they replace the I's with Y's. Um, so that just adds an, an extra level to unpack here. But it's the fact that IBM is doing it. The more I think about this, and I've had I've had a couple of hours to ponder over this name change this morning. Um, so I, I've developed a, a rather sophisticated take, if you don't mind me saying. It's IBM, International Business Machines, the world's oldest, most legacy name, now going a complete 180, too far to the other end. Kindrel. This is a naming disaster, Chris. Well, I, I would agree, and I know we tend to make fun of. These new names on the show, Mondelez, we got a lot of laughter out of, as well as a number of truest. Um, but you can do it right. Like I think Accenture is fine. Accent on the future makes perfect sense to me, and it's not that hard to pronounce or spell. Um, so you can get this done if you really want to go that route. However, this is a, I think, a big miss. I'm glad you mentioned Truist, Ron, because one of my thoughts was the people who came up with Truist must be high-fiving each other right now. <laughs> they must feel so good about themselves relative to Kindrel. 
Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Emily Flippin, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I am looking at Bilibili. The ticker is B-I-L-I. It is a Chinese live streaming service that's back on my radar after listening to some great thoughts from Aaron Bush and his team over at Master the Metal last week. Bilibili has really reinvented its business to become a diversified, uh, not just live streaming, not just gaming, but e-commerce and social interaction platform. It's truly taking up a lot of market share in China, and it's one that I'm really excited to be a shareholder of. Dan, question about Beely Beely? Uh, sure thing, Chris. Emily, uh, over the last uh, three months, four months here since January, the stock has been on a little bit of a wild ride. Uh, what do you think for the next eight months? Is this volatility going to calm down at all? Billy Billy is volatile, not just because it's a Chinese company, but it also had a little bit of controversy earlier this year regarding some content that they had featured on their site, taken from Japan, that was, to be kind, less than appropriate. I will expect this business to continue to be volatile, especially since they're going through a business transformation. But I do think Billy Billy long-term could be a $100 billion-plus business. Ron Gross, what's on your radar this week? Dan, because I know you're a huge fan of specialty chemical companies, and you're a huge <laughs> fan of making fun of me, I'm going to go with Ecolab, ECL, leading provider of cleaning, sanitation, other specialty chemical products and services, $12 billion in sales, global leader in water hygiene infection prevention solutions, low risk profile, long track record of success, gaining share from rivals, margins have been improving, uh, they're increasing innovation uh, through growth investment moving into digital technologies and sale capabilities. They've raised their dividend annually for the past 29 years, and they've paid dividends for 84 consecutive years. Yield is just under 1%, so not huge, but hey, it'll beat cash every day. Um, and I think uh, you'll have a nice total return opportunity with both the yield and uh, price appreciation going forward. Dan, question about Ecolab? You know, I was just thinking, what does the value of a stock make a value investor, or does a value investor search for value stocks? Like this is a classic wheelhouse Ron stock. Uh, it, it's it's uh, chemicals. It's a dividend aristocrat. It's uh, been around for almost a hundred years. Like what what Ron is it the is it you or is it the stocks? <laughs> when you are, uh, you know, pitching me on these value stocks, it's it's the pond you fish in, right? I think I think so. Um, I don't necessarily understand technology as well as some, and I can't predict the future as well as some. So I gravitate to these more old economy companies that, for me, are easier to predict and to value. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? Well, I like giving Ron uh, a little bit of you know ribbing every now and then about his stocks, but I actually like Ecolab a whole lot. I, I think there is a lot of future in water uh, and how important that's going to be to a lot of people. Uh, so I'm going to go with Ecolab. What, what do I do? What do I need to do to get you on my side, Dan? I don't know. I mean, water or Chinese video games? It's clear Which... to me. It's clear to me. <laughs> so is water. We're out of time. Emily Flippin, Ron Gross, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our producer's Matt Creer. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week. Okay.